Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. The Two Enthusiasts Podcast. My mom's third favorite podcast. <laughs> yeah? What's one and two? Oh, I don't know. Probably something on QVC. Does QVC have podcasts? <laughs> she's probably she's probably she's probably listening to those. Like Joan Rivers. QVC has got to be good. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Quinn, this episode is brought to us not by QVC, but by the good folks at Dainese. It is motorcycle gear inspired for humans. They have factory D stores in San Francisco, Orange County, Chicago, and now and Orlando. Orlando. I noticed that, that. is open and they are for business. Literally working like probably as we speak on the one in New York City. They are. I was just talking to them. The one in New York City is coming very soon and there'll be another one in Los Angeles shortly thereafter. Right on. So this thank is... you to them for supporting us. Yes. And right. my mom for supporting us on Facebook and social media. Thanks. Even Bonnie. though we're only her third favorite podcast. Yeah. It's, it's good. <laughs> this is also brought to you by Asahi. I'm having a super dry Asahi right super now. Super dry. It's good. I, I don't have a beverage because no one brought me back a Mountain Dew from the fridge. No, no. What a jerk. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. We're going to talk about that later. Oh, yeah. We're talking about it now. Yeah, well, I could leave if you want me to. I can go and get one. <laughs> no, no. We should have a break that. Thump, 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 thump. And then. Look, 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 look. Brain freeze, brain freeze, brain freeze. <laughs> Quentin, we're in a good mood, but I want to talk about some some somber news first because we didn't get a chance to to talk about it earlier. Um, We've been mourning the loss of Nikki Hayden for the last week or two now. Big thing in the motorcycle industry, big for for not only like American racing fans and for the American motorcycle industry, but the world around. Um, Former MotoGP champion, AMA Supersport champion, AMA Superbike champion with fans literally around the world. I think you'd have a hard time finding a country that didn't have a Nikki Hayden fan because he was incredibly popular with racing enthusiasts, incredibly popular in the paddocks he raced in, just an all-around really good human being. Yeah, and it's of note that we we recorded like days after it was announced that he... Day of, actually. Was it? Yeah. And, I, and it just, it wasn't good. We couldn't, it was weird. Yeah, it's too... It's a little too raw. Right. A little too raw. Um, so sorry about that, but that was kind of that threw everybody for a loop enough to even where we were like i don't know what do you say it's such a bad deal it's tough right it's it's one of those things like i'm still having like that that stage is a grief thing where i'm still not quite sure that it happened you know like that that denial stage um cuz it's just it just seems like such an unreal thing to happen and um you know, I'm sure there's there's a lot of other people that are like that. For for me, it was really surreal because the the day that he got injured that Wednesday, we were set to publish a story that um, Steve had been working on with Nikki really closely and sat down. And he sat, Steve English. Steve English, sorry. So our compatriot from the Paddock Pass podcast, he does some stories for me on Asphalt and Rubber as well. And for MotoGP, he works for MotoGP. Oh, he works for the Moto- World Superbike Paddock. He's Dorna's Dorna. commentator he works for, for Dorna. World Superbike. Sorry, Dorna. Yeah, he was in the MotoGP paddock. You're correct, um, but he, had, Nikki, had sat down and asked him and had this long interview about Nikki's past and growing up racing and all these things, and we were turning it into a, a two part story, and and actually there was, was more than just two stories coming out of it. But there, you know, there's a lot going on, and we were going to publish it that Monday, and I was like, Hey, Steve, do you have like 
do you have any photos? Does Nikki have any photos? Can we can we see if we can get something for this? Because you know he's talking about growing up in his backyard and racing in the backyard with his brothers and sisters and all this stuff. And so he text messages Nikki, and Nikki's like, "Oh yeah, I got all sorts of photos." But he's like in the airport, he's like, "I'll get them to you when I land." And you know, the next day we get these photos. And I'm like, "All right, we'll set the story up for the next morning." And I literally woke up to publish this story for for our A and R pro readers, and was reading the news about what happened in Italy when he was on his bicycle. And it just it just struck me because it was just like, man, we were just talking to him. We were just working on this feature with him. And now he's I mean, at that point he was he was he, we all all we knew was that he was injured. You know, in retrospect now we know like, you know, that was that was kind of it. And that's and tough. even just the week before, I had been joking around on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, from because you know, the way he pronounces uh, oh, Tesso. It's Tesso. <laughs> right? I mean Oh, it not- slays me now. It totally slays me. Cause it's just it's like when it's like we were joking about it because it's such like quintessential Nikki with his like Kentucky yeah, twang for and sure. doing his thing, being the hardest working guy in the paddock as usual. Yep. And it was just like some random YouTube ad. I don't even think we were looking at it, like a motorcycle video. That's the funny part of, of what was going on. But yeah, yeah, we were just we were just having that joke. And it's weird. It's weird that he's gone. Um, I thought it was a good ceremony in, in Owensboro um, that they were they graciously uh, his family live streamed it on on Facebook for all the fans to see. Um, and obviously, you know, like just, just I can't even count the number of press releases and people that that were talking about uh, losing him. And like there was companies that I don't even think like. I was like, did, did Nicky even work with them? Did he work with that team? Did he work with that sponsor? But he was such a revered person in the paddock that it would make total sense that like they would they would feel compelled to to share their grief because he touched a lot of people. He was he was a super hardworking guy, super friendly, super outgoing. I think you were saying in, in the show that that we didn't publish that you know how charismatic he was. And um, yeah, and I didn't know him. You know, this is one of the people in the industry that I've been. I grew up with Nikki Hayden watching him race because I started in 93 playing with motorcycles, right? And that was right about when he was starting to race. And then as I was going to MMI and started watching racing uh, at a a club level, at a national level, uh, and then paying attention to world level, I was watching him as I was in MMI and uh, 96, 97 and going, living in Los Angeles, 98, 99. This is when he was racing super sport. So I've known nothing but Nikki Hayden and racing for almost the entirety of my motorcycling career. He's just ubiquitous. It was just Nikki Hayden as part of the, and Nikki and his brothers and, yeah. and, uh, <clears throat> Rose and Earl and, it's the part of the paddock and it's a given. And that was the way it and always was going to be. Too. You know, his sisters are in the paddock. Um, I've worked with, uh, Kathleen a little bit on, on, Something we did when Earl's book came out. Super sweet lady. Yeah, I mean, it's all the whole, literally, I think the book's called like the family of racing. First yeah, family sure. of racing or something like that. Sure. And then there, there's all sorts of other people in my circles, though, even though I wasn't uh, around Nikki or Roger Lee or Tommy and any of my racing, I managed to uh, unfortunately be away from them. I was on different teams when I was, you know, playing with motorcycles and in in AMA, but everybody I know. And so my Facebook feed was gnarly it's gnarly but good and that so many people that i know very very well had worked directly with him like directly whether it be chris johnham who wrote the book about the hayden family and who Nikki wrote specifically. a lovely obituary too by the way yeah his was probably the best his is amazing so chris johnham for sure um uh, lance holst who was the team manager for 
Nikki when Nikki was racing the hypercycle Suzuki. And I think that was a 98 or 99, whatever that was, whatever. So these, the, those were two of the like 20 people that came out with stories, fascinating little missives about any, anything that had to do with the Haydens in general. So every story was good. So that was good. At least, at least in that way, the remembrances were heavy, but in a, in a, in a productive way, I guess, to, to, Keep the memory of Nikki positive, even though it's horrible. So, no. yeah. So there's that. Yeah, I didn't have as big of a personal relationship as probably a lot of people did, but I definitely had a professional relationship with him. And, um, you know, and he was at the the Arai helmet launch that you and I were at. Um, was that two years ago at Thunderhill mm-hmm. for the Quantum Quantum X? And I remember just just BSing with him when we were getting food because you know it's like you know Nikki's probably like negative 3% body fat. And he's just like, kind of like getting a small salad and I'm like sitting there like stacking up my plate with like fried chicken and hamburger. And he just kind of like looks at me and I'm just like, what, what do you want? I got this John McGinnis body. What are you talking about? Leave me alone. <laughs> you know, he probably had some smart ass remark for it too. And I don't remember it. Um, but just those like little things like that. And I remember, um, when I came into the MotoGP paddock, he was still with Ducati. Um, and I remember, I can't remember what round it was, one of the American rounds and I'm coming into the paddock in the morning and it's kind of early and he's talking to his mechanic or something. And I've been, I've been doing MotoGP for going to MotoGP races two, three years at that point. Like, so, you know, like I expect him to like kind of recognize me, especially as like one of the few Americans, but like not to really know me. And like, he like, it, it was a defining moment for me in my professional career. Cause it's like one of those like kind of things we realize like, ah, I've kind of made it. Like, I'm like, before this, I maybe I hadn't made it. And like this defining point shows now that I have, because I'm walking in and he stops his conversation with the mechanic and comes over and just gives me like a little fist bump. Like, Hey buddy, how you doing? And I was just like, you know, I'm Jensen Beeler, right? This is, yeah. you're, you're not confusing me for someone else. Right. But it was just, it just struck me. Like he made the effort to like, just say hi. And I was just like, you don't, I wasn't really expecting that. And it kind of, it took me back for a minute. So it was cool. Um, the, nar- the 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 biggest story for me relative to that type of thing was the uh, the person who talked about giving him the flag at the f- at when he won the championship. Oh yeah, did you read that story? No. Oh, dude, yeah, it's gnarly. I, I'm sorry if I, I thought maybe I'd post it on the two enthusiast page, but if I didn't, it was probably just on my personal page. But it was the it was a gentleman um, from Spain hmm. who had been carrying around the flag at various MotoGP races. He's a, a journalist in some capacity and what had it there because he knew that there weren't be too many cases where somebody would have an American flag for Nicky in case he won. Nobody thought Nicky would win, especially after, after Pedrosa took him out. Right. And and Rossi, right? Nobody would have thought in, for a million years that he would persevere against Rossi. And he did, right? So this dude was able to give him that American flag and uh, used like a mop handle that was confiscated from somewhere on the in the track. Probably because he couldn't bring it in. Right. right. Yeah. yeah they had to, so the story is really good. And it, the, uh. the, the reason why I'm bringing it up in this way is because he talked about how Nikki, he'd introduced him, his, Nikki to his daughter, or his daughter knew who Nikki was before he did, because Nikki was like this. When he first got in in 2003, I think, into MotoGP, the daughter was like, ooh, this is a very, mm, you know, American handsome, boy, very handsome, handsome young American, yeah. right? 
And uh, Nikki remembered his daughter's name every time they'd see each other, and it would be over the course of a long time, and would remembered her name like like specifically not even kind of like just recognized and fist bump but like you know he probably he probably knew exactly who you were even though you didn't think so but i i thought that was a very interesting and telling thing for him as well so i should uh i will uh put that in the notes i'm gonna write that down to, the show notes. to make fake this uh <laughs> put that uh video up or, or that article that story yeah that story for sure yeah that'd be good um so yeah it's it's been a tough week it's been a tough couple weeks Dealing with that, our, our, our thoughts are definitely with, uh, the Hayden family, with, uh, Jackie, Nikki's fiance. Um, you know, it's going to be a super tough time for them and hopefully each day gets a little bit better. But, you know, there's, there's people all around the world that are missing him. So uh, there's strength in numbers on that. Yep. Uh, with that, Quentin, uh, I want to turn to some news, if you'll allow me. I, I will. You may. I may. Um, but, 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 you want to talk about, Want to keep it American and talk Harley Davidson? Oh yeah, I'm all about Harley Davidson. You, I know you love a good Harley Davidson. H- Harley Abelson. <laughs> Let's talk about. Uh, I can't wait for Harley Davidson to become like a 21st century company. You know, right after we drag them out of the 19th century and into the 20th century. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that day. Uh-huh. Um, so this is kind of like this is kind of like a dud of a story, but I think it's really important. So that's why I wanted to talk about it because Harley Davidson's opening up a production plant. In Thailand. And I say it's a dud of a story because it's like, you're opening up a plant in Thailand. Big whoop. What's the tie? Right. Are you, how are you tying this in? Tying it in. Well, it's a big deal because, <laughs> well, one, it kind of comes at an interesting point in time. Because Harley Davidson just cut 118 jobs out of its York plant in Pennsylvania. Uh, unionized plant. And it also comes during, right after... Um, the U.S. pulled out of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement. And it obviously comes at a time when international relations for, for the U.S. and its companies is kind of in, in a flux kind of moment. So it's interesting to see, you know, this all kind of stems around Harley-Davidson trying to get into Southeast Asia. And the reason you set up a plant in Thailand is, one, because Thailand has like these insane tariffs, so like 60% on uh, the size motorcycle that Harley Davidson imports is 60%. And also because Thailand is in its own kind of regional trading group, if you can build them in Thailand, you can sell them in other countries that have high tariffs. This is as why well. Ducati put a plant in Thailand three, three or four years ago. Some manufacturers have um, what are called like total knockdown kit assembly plants which are basically like the bike comes in in its most minimum form that it will be considered not a motorcycle. It gets quote unquote assembled. And that's how it is in like Brazil or Argentina. I think Harley has that going on there where they basically all you're doing is put the handlebars. You're you're basically uncreating them. Yeah. You're (laughs) putting them together. And that is the production line. And it is, it is kind of silly. Like how little, like it's like installing a wheel and a handlebar and like a headlight. But it allows, so when you do that, let's say you're Harley Davidson and you import into Thailand, you then can get into Malaysia and Indonesia, China, China. China's a huge India. one, Japan. I think all of it. Some of them, some of them, different countries have different kind sure. of relationships, but Thailand's a good get in that respect because then you get around all these things. And that was kind of like the, the, the pushback is, is like, this is the growth center for Harley Davidson. That's the other thing I think people don't understand is Harley Davidson sales domestically continue to shrink. 
but its sales abroad continue to grow. And some of that growth is in Europe, but really the bulk of that growth is Southeast Asia, China, India, uh, South America. And there's this kind of internal struggle inside Harley-Davidson and trying to be an American brand with a union workforce and built in America and, you know, all that kind of marketing bravado that Harley Davidson has profited on for the last, I don't know, 50 years or whatever. Hundred. Well, I wouldn't say they've been profitable. For oh, yeah. There's Good like point. those AMF years, <laughs> yeah, sure, and, right. you know, but it's, you know, it's something that they've kind of, you know, become famous for. Like they're, they're the quintessential American brand. And it's kind of like this realization that the future of this American brand really exists outside of the Americas which I thought was, that's what makes the, the story important for me. It might not be the sex, it's like the unsexy business story, yeah, but I sure. think there's larger implications here on like what it means for Harley Davidson as a company and Harley Davidson as a brand. And it's like this idea of like, if you're, and this is probably something that like a brand like BMW would have trouble with and, and Ducati, like brands that are like intrinsically tied to their geography when they're no longer made there. Like, does that lose something? Do you know well, that was the interesting thing. Remember when Ducati started making the scramblers or they were, they make all kinds of shit in that plant, but the only ones that were coming to the United States were scramblers. Right. And there were a lot of people in the dealer meeting. I remember being a little freaked out by this because the Ducati execs at the time were like, Hey, this bike is going to be made in Thailand. It's going to come here from Thailand. And everybody was sweating. It's like, oh, 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 it was the same type of people that were really worried about what would happen if there was no more trellis frame or dry clutch. It's like, oh, oh, what are we going to do? Nobody gives a kind shit. Sound, like the sound you're making kind of reminds you like a beach seal. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's part of the whinging. It's a lot of whinging. It's like an elephant seal mating. <laughs> it is. Yeah. You ever, you ever seen an elephant seal mate? No, I haven't. Oh, it's brutal. I've, I've seen them. That is not lovemaking. I don't know what that is, but it, it is, is to not them. lovemaking. It is to no, them. that is that is a transactional interaction. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's what it sounds Google, like. When, Google put that in the show notes. You should Google elephant seal sex because that is not pretty. All right, I'm going <laughs> to do that right now. So, and I'm just going to ruin it for you too. Penguin sex, not gentle. <laughs> what? I'm don't starting know. to wonder. No, don't don't want to know why get you're real lonely. Why your animal husbandry uh, <laughs> levels are high? Truth, truthfully, because I've been to Phillip Island, I've seen the penguins go at it. The oh, there's season. penguins up there. Oh yeah, there's a penguin refuge uh, right near the track. That's so cool. I forgot uh, where how little, far that is down yeah. towards Antarctica. Yeah, right. Because that's you're, the only place where there's penguins. You're in deep penguin country. Oh yeah. Yeah. Penguin. So that's a damn nail killed him. I, damn, I, lucky I, I looped that right back into motorcycling real quick. It was <laughs> blow my cover for a second there. Uh, I don't have an explanation for the elephant seals. I don't know. Uh, I was, no, blow I your was, cover. I was on it, Wikipedia. It's like better three hours to, later. to blow your cover than blow a seal, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a joke, by the way. I don't have the time no, to tell the joke. No, but there's that, a great joke with the punch joke. leg. And it is like, did you blow a seal? No, 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 no. That's just ice cream. <laughs> That's the punchline, <laughs> which is funny because I, I had to get my forks on my husky redone recently, and because the seal was blown, and I was like, <laughs> arr, uh, arr, yeah, arr. and I was like, oh, I gotta go into the dealership, and they're gonna make fun of me, and this, did you blow a seal? No, it's just ice cream, <laughs> and no one made the joke. Yeah, maybe it was just it was like too low, low hanging fruit. They're like, that guy watches penguin sex, man. I don't know. I don't <laughs> yeah, know we don't want to get into it. I don't know. It's gonna be a whole thing. 
<sighs> All right. Well, you went. We went so far off that I can't remember really how this tied thing. into Harley Davidson. Other than the deal. Oh yeah, the dealers, the, dealers the whinging out. elephant seal dealers were like, "Oh, we're not going to be able to sell them." And it's it's never been an issue. Nobody gives a flying fuck, right? There there are bikes like if it was a Panigale, I think it might matter. But even then, really straight up, a lot of us were like, "The bikes that are coming out of there are going to be better than the ones coming out of Italy." Blasphemy. Sorry, they were blasphemy. They are right. I, I would agree with you. You don't. I mean, here, totally here's why. I'll tell you why. And this is a weird thing, is I think there's so much bizarro socialist nightmare unionized crap that goes on in Italy that we would see sabotage, straight up sabotage, like people on the line doing shitty stuff to the bikes. And I haven't seen it in a long time, but that happened. And I was like, in Thailand, nobody gives shit. They're getting paid. They're stoked. They just put the bikes together, right? In Italy, you'd have a some sort of awful strike, and the trains would be striking, and then that would cause the right the whole industry to be all shitty, and there would be problems. That would be what I'd worry about. Yeah, and and meanwhile in Thailand, like if you want to pull that stuff, there's like ten other people that will take your job yeah. for like dollar an hour or whatever they're making, which yeah. is probably silly. So it's an interesting dynamic as as somebody who believes in in uh, in unions to a point. Right, I believe in a balance of it, but to know how bad it is there, I will say without getting into the the politics of unions and all that, and just sidestep that for a minute because I think you and I both have pretty strong opinions that'll get us in trouble. But it is worth reading a book called Fast Company by David M. Gross. Um, he was a former, was he a marketing manager, director of marketing? He was marketing. It, um, at Ducati during the TPG. Oh, yeah, David. Yeah, 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 sure. Cool guy. Wrote a really interesting book, and there's a lot going on in this book um, that some of it's outside of the motorcycle industry. Some of it is about motorcycle industry, but he provides a really interesting perspective on Ducati at that point in time. Was this right when they got released to public? Or yeah. went, right when they went public? Yeah, it was <laughs> TPG bringing the company public. Okay. Um, and it, so, it's, so it's Manoli... And it's all those um, Manoli Terre Blanche sounds delicious. I want to get a couple of Manolis on my home. <laughs> Terre Blanche, Dominicali, and he doesn't use everyone's real name in the story, which is kind of weird. But like, <laughs> if you're a Ducatisti, you'll figure it out pretty quick. Okay. But there's this great story about when the workers went on strike and how they came up to the management level and started like tossing chairs and books and stuff. And I forget what it was, but like they were, they were acting very violent. And he was like in his little office that wasn't like out, like in the cubicle area. It was like a, it was like a closed door office. Yeah. And there's all these people, people screaming, there's people pounding on his windows and yelling at him. And, you know, he was like, he was talking about how, how scary it was, how freaked out he was and how, like how violent it kind of was. And he was talking to, I think he was talking to Manoli afterwards and, you know, he's relaying like, like, you know, Federico, it was so, this was so intense. And he goes, well, they didn't come into your office, did they? And he was like, no, no, no one, no one actually crossed like the threshold of my door. Like it was, they, they were, it was really weird. Actually, they stayed right outside the door. It's like, oh, okay, then it's fine. Then that, that was the agreement. Like, like, <laughs> like, the, like the, the, the big protest had even been kind of like negotiated. Like you're allowed to go turn over these tables, but anyone in an office that's off limits, but you can yell at them, but you can't cross the door. And it was just, it was like, it was like the most bizarre kind of like thing, like me as an American, as a capitalist to read that was just like, this is really, really strange. And then, you know, I, uh, 
having lived in Italy and kind of seen some of that, I was like, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense though. And then out, you know, later visiting the the factory and all that, you're like, all right. Oh, yeah, and just of... read up on Bologna itself. This is well, Bologna is very much a socialist center in Italy, yeah, dude, which is already communist, a very communist, yeah. not just socialist, yeah, communist. You're right. Look you're up right. the Red Brigade, the Bergazzi Rossi. Look that up. And and seriously, I put it in the show notes already because I was going to bring it up. I was like, this, this is a gnarly situation. That city is fascinating and on many levels, and this is one of the reasons. So, yeah, I can see it. So, back to that, I can see why Harley-Davidson would go into Thailand, and I can see why Ducati did, and there's not been very many issues at all, um, at least in my time dealing with the bikes that were coming out of there. They were all very well. The only issues would be engineering issues, not uh, assembly issues, right? Well, yeah, exactly, and that's and that's kind of like the thing I was trying to get to with, with the union thing, where it was, you know, there there is such a ripe workforce that truthfully doesn't get treated very well and would probably benefit from being unionized. But because factory workers are such a commodity in places like Thailand, it's like if you don't get your stuff together, there are 20 other people in line to get your job who will. And they can just click through it until they find that person that, oh, that's our wheel guy. He does wheels right. He's That's our frame guy. And you're like, yeah, okay, maybe the first couple couple bikes that come off the assembly line might not be perfect, but the rest of them pretty much are because they have all the human resources they need to make it perfect. So if there's issues, it usually comes down to engineering at that point. Whereas, you know, in a union plant, it would be harder to replace that person. Yep. And that's all I got to say about that. Um, talking about weird, messed up things in the United States, Quentin, I want to shift gears and talk to you about where you can get a good deal on an Olin shock. <laughs> oh yeah, that's good. <laughs> you like that transition? Yeah, that's really good. So, so this happened a while ago, but it's now that it's going to be interesting to talk about now because it's it's sat for a while. Yeah, good old Dan Kyle, Dan Kyle Racing, which is a name I knew kind of coming up as a as a motorcyclist when I was getting into to track days and just looking to put cool fast parts on my bike. And like his name was the one that kept kind of like, oh, you want an Olin shock? You want some Olin's forks? You go to Dan Kyle Racing. Well, and right and out of Monterey, before Carmel. Before that, so this would have been the early 2000s, he was known as the person you'd go to for CBR 900RR hop up stuff, possibly RC45, RC30 stuff, and some Honda Hawk stuff. But mainly, he had focused on CBR 900RRs because he had. Uh, a lot to do with the Arian CBR 900 RRs that were in the... That is E-R-I-O-N. Arian. Yes, we got to make sure... We got to be careful around that now. Yeah, we should, right? Um, so Arian Racing, which was a split off of Two Brothers Racing, right? Um, w- employed Dan Kyle, and Dan, I think, was also involved with Honda... Um, and Torrance as well. I don't remember exactly what, but I just remember if you needed something trick, like if you wanted to build a super bike engine, I think it was in the Formula Extreme class at the time, uh, was the 900s, uh, CBR 900s and the R1s and whatnot, the Arian CBR 900RR, uh, and I will I, I will make sure to make a note of that, is one of the most beautiful motorcycles ever. It's really pretty. Cool paint job, kind of funky 90s style paint job, but Gorgeous bodywork that was like the the uh, an amalgamation between an RC45 and a CBR900RR, and and truth be told, the CBR900RR was one of the most seminal f- sport bikes ever produced ever, and a lot of people forget it because the R1 took over 
very clearly from the CBR 900RR in 1998. But the 900 came out in like 93 or 94, 93, 92 or 93, sorry, whatever, early 90s. And it was so much lighter than everything else and so much faster and so much radder. And the only thing that uh, Ed's Achilles heel was uh, a 16-inch front tire. It was really strange. Not 16 and a half, it was 16? 16. 16. Huh. It was a weird thing. Uh, it was. It was very weird. Uh, but large sidewall tire. And there was reasons for it. I'm sure it worked in some ways, but most people had to change it. Anyway. Dan Kyle was the known place to go for that. So if you read like Superbike Planet at the time, uh, I don't know if if that's still a website that's going, but at the time it was amasuperbike.com. It it is. It is because um, anonymous hackers ended up getting ransomware on it and take it over for a little while. And then Dean had to like buy it back. Poor guy. Right. Well, back when it was amasuperbike.com. Before AMA, I think probably had to buy it from him. Yeah, which was a smart business move. That there. was a, a yeah, I don't know if, if smart is the word, <laughs> right? But whatever, you know, I'm sure he made some money off of it. But maybe whatever he made from that, he probably got taken away it, by the oh, by the hackers. It was probably a wash. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so I remember it, it was either advertised on there or something, and I remember going into the website and being all excited because you could get. I don't know, titanium valves. Or, you know, I just dream about what you could do to your, I had an F2. So you could dream about what you could do. And I think he also did stuff with all the Hondas, but mainly it was CBR900s. So anyway, that's how I knew of Dan Kyle. Then over the course of the years, he just became known as the place to get an Olin's outside of any other hop-up shop, right? And, and it was the bane of the existence of most motorcycle shops. Uh, even Pro Italia at the time in the early 2000s, uh, we had to go up against this guy who would obviously had some sort of a sweet deal. He would buy a lot and he would put it up and it was, uh, he well, would, he could sell the, sh- well, yeah, we quick, know I, now. I think, I think we know what the sweet deal is. If you'll let me interrupt it, just so, yeah, so people understand what, what, what we're driving towards is he, he got popped by, um, the U S attorney's office for in a federal way. Um, so yeah, he's getting accused, uh, of allegedly, defrauding the u.s government out of a substantial amount of um money um where is it here my notes are gonna gonna somewhere between five hundred thousand and one point five million dollars in unpaid taxes and basically what he was doing was just not not paying the tax uh, according to uh to the u.s attorney's office so um you know, it sounds like if if you're not being up and up on your business taxes and uh, some inventory is falling off the back of the truck, kind of thing, and yeah, basically anybody that, that, that went would in allow there would, you to, to to have cutthroat pricing. Anybody that went in there could buy a shock at cost, and he wouldn't. You'd be you'd probably pay cash, and there it went, right? I would assume. And then anything he did online kind of filtered it. So I I would love to know how it worked, and I'd love to know how he got caught. Yeah, it, it does sound like he was he was hiding. It was ca- it was the cash based transactions that he was sure that he was monkeying but that's around the, on. That's the interesting thing is that that's how much he was uh, on the cash based only. That that's how much that's he, how the, much business he was doing. So that that shows you how much business he was doing in total. It's like wow, that's impressive. See, that's so I like that's where you went to. I was more intrigued by like how he was laundering the money through post office money orders. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a good way of doing that. Uh, what was the deal? So basically, so he gets the cash, right? But you have to you have to launder it. So this is this is a good example. If you need to, if you need to launder money, here's a good way of doing it. 
<laughs> uh, I would say not a good way of doing it. I mean, but this is know, a way of doing it. He got away with it for a while, Clinton. Okay. I mean, okay. it took him like decades to catch okay. him. So well, it's a pretty good way. All right. Well, let's let's just say. And, and, and again, remember, one point up to one point five million in taxes owed. Yeah. You could probably like feel like one point two million probably fly around under the radar. Once you hit that one point five, that one point five, that's a lot. But basically, he figured out that if you if you buy a money order for less than three thousand dollars, it doesn't basically get reported by the post office. So he would go in, his cash, be like, "I'd like a three thousand dollar money order." Make it payable to? I don't know. I mean, that that's the thing I don't really understand. Like, he'd probably have to like have like an idea of what he was going to go buy, or he just kind of make it payable to Bob, and then Bob gives him three thousand dollars. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I, don't, I mean, that, that part yeah, of it. Yeah, some system worked out. That part obviously wasn't working out so well. <laughs> that's how he got popped. But yeah, he would launder it through these money orders. And you're like, I'm just sitting there going like, that's a lot of money orders, man. And I think there's some kind of element of like, you can only do it so many times at p- certain post offices in so many days. Yeah. So he was like, I'm, so he was like I'm going up to the Bay Area. Yeah. I'll see you later. Yeah. Right. Um, I got to go to Napa this, this week. <laughs> I would love to know how he figured that out. Like what was like, like, was there one day where he was like, I got to get this money order. I got to, you know, pay my rent or something on the building or whatever. And they want money orders. And like, like it kind of just like came up in, ca- in casual conversation with the post office guy or, and he's like, Oh, that'd be a great way to defraud the government of millions of dollars by selling suspension. Ding, 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 ding. So, well, yeah. so there that is that. And that, um, was, quite a there was a bunch of people that schadenfreude ruled because he had screwed so many different businesses uh by making it i mean almost impossible to sell olin's profitably because anybody that that would go into a let's just say a ducati shop i think out of all the brands where olin's is the most popular as far as Who's going to actually buy it for their end user bike? Not just there's racers, of course, would use it all the time because it is really, really good. But other than the racers, you would get track day enthusiasts. You know, I'd say a lot of people would buy them from Ducati shops. I was involved with it. I saw it, right? Graves himself uh, would sell these these units, but you you know we would sell them specked out and done done Valve up, right? Sprung for the weight and all that. Yeah, does. from what I remember, and I think Dan would do that to an extent he would. too. He would because right? I remember you you because I, I I looked into it once. In fact, I may have even bought one from him. I bought an Olin Shock from R One at one point. I'm trying to remember who I bought it from, but it was like the option. I remember looking at Dan Kyle's. I mean, like you like you set in like how much you weighed. Yeah, he would with your gear on. They'd set the spring. He would quote would unquote do the, set it up. Yeah, well. And that makes you wonder. He probably most of the time because Olins are usually good enough to where you straight up you might you just you just spring it for your weight and then the damping will come right. You don't necessarily need to to put in a different shim stack or whatever. So it wasn't generally it wasn't that difficult to do. And and so that's an interesting dynamic that that was going on. But most shops couldn't beat his prices. Somebody would go in uh, to go on the online and find that the shock that the the shop is. Is uh, selling would be you know fifteen percent off. They they like he would sell shocks for less than what the dealerships oh, yeah. would buy them for. Right? I remember I, I picked mine up for like eight hundred, eight hundred fifty dollars, and at the time like it was retailing for like twelve hundred. So I don't know what the dealer markup is on that, but yeah, that's like fifty percent, yo. Yeah, and you wouldn't necessarily be able to <clears throat> advertise that. And it'd be interesting to hear what the guys at Olin's have to say. And that's one of the most depressing things about our our Ducati Coda deal is that we didn't 
that the the sound oh, from the, from Matt Sage didn't come through. So we're gonna have to sort that out because that was a really good conversation. Uh, this is Matt Sage, who was the the main guy, sales guy for Olin's USA, and he had some. He had a, one of the carbon fiber fork tubes that Dovey uses. Uh, well, Dovey tested it, but yeah. Well, no, he was using it. I will tell well, you what, it was on the bike at uh, this past weekend. Oh, was it? Yeah, I, I, I was because I was like watching closely, and I was holy shit because that bike was working so well. Obviously, I was like, what? Anyway, sorry. So, um, he he would be one to ask, like, all right, this this has to be good for Olin's, or maybe it wasn't because he was selling so many that. Right. So the way I remember the story was the fact that like he was responsible for moving so much Olin's product in the US that he was basically untouchable. Yeah. Um, but ended up pleading guilty. It's gonna get uh sentenced on August twenty first. Could be facing uh some serious fineage. So uh we'll see what happens there. We'll definitely keep you in touch when uh, that goes down because I'll be curious to see what the resolution is for that because it for, for me on a legal level, I just find it very fascinating. I, I don't have a great criminal mind. So to kind of see something like this, we're like, oh yeah, money orders. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. How are you going to do this? Millions of dollars. Oh yeah. Wow. Oh. Carmel, not a cheap place to live. No. Poland shocks. Who knew? All right. Enjoy your time in prison. Yeah. I had to buy, uh, <clears throat> one time I went to Laguna with my street fighter and I took some wheels with fresh tires down there and the tires were too large in diameter to fit in the swing arm, the first year um, street fighters are known for having a, not enough room in the swing arm. You know, they changed it for later ones. And uh, I had to go down to Dan Kyle's because it's in Sand City or whatever right there to buy a, uh, a, a chain of sprockets, basically, or a chain at least. And I remember getting gouged heavily and the guy was a dick. So, Oh, really? <laughs> uh, you didn't get a deal? No. Did you pay cash? Yeah. Yeah, oh, there I, you go. Yeah, there it is. Right. Well, yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know how he was doing on chains. Perhaps he. <laughs> right? that, that, there's not a lot of margin in chains. I know that much yeah, for sure. Uh, but, but yeah, that was. Uh, I, I'm not the type of person that goes into a place like that. I work for Ducat in North America. Give me a deal. I, I just expect somebody to not be a dick, and the guy was a dick. Right. That's it. I, I wasn't saying he was a dick because he didn't give me a deal. The guy's trying to make money. In my head, I'm like. I'm helping support this person who supports our, in, in my head, I'm seriously, I'm thinking this. He does so much for the industry. He sells all these products and he does, he does more harm than or good than harm. Now, now I'm thinking back on that. I'm like, oh, you're, you're just awful. saying that his customer service was lacking. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I'm just saying, uh, I need to get a Olin shock if anyone's got a hookup. <laughs> <laughs> just, just going to throw float that out there. Uh, if there's a, you know, Dan, if something needs to disappear before you go to prison. <laughs> uh, Quentin, we need to take a break for the commercials. And when we come Is back. Is it going to be a Dainese break? It's going to be, it's going to be a D break. <laughs> when we come back, uh, I want to talk to you about some racing. Okay. Sounds good. So, so Quentin, we, we, we teased it at the beginning of the show. There are Dainese factory stores, D stores, right now in San Francisco, Orange County, and Chicago. And Orlando. And, well, and now Orlando. Like, we've been, we've been talking about this and talking about this, like, coming soon in Orlando. Yeah, They're working sure. in Orlando. It's up. It's running. It's right next to the Ace Cafe, the Florida. Like, you know, the, there's the Ace Cafe in London. That's, that's famous. Mm-hmm. But it's like right next door to it. They've got like a little motorcycle compound thing they're making there, which oh, I awesome. think is kind of cool. Okay. Well, then that's awesome. So you go you go for your coffee. 
stay for your airbag suits. I don't think that's like the. I didn't get any. I didn't get any notes. If you can tell. Yeah, sure. I don't know if that's like the official marketing line. Yeah, but I think but that like, would be. They should float that out there. Go and for see the coffee. Was, stay for your airbag suit. Or go for the airbag suit. Stay for the coffee. Yeah. I don't know. One work, of the work two. Work it out. That's yeah. what the marketing people are for. <laughs> um, but very very cool. See, I was just talking to the store, the 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 overall store manager person about it, and they were on their way to New York to open up their store there. And then uh, I think the Chicago store is actually getting moved out of Schaumburg and oh. into like downtown Chicago. No way, really? Yeah, that's interesting. So, so things are afoot in in the land of Dinesia. If you stores. don't know the Chicago area, the Schaumburg is is out there. Schaumburg's a little out there, right? Which is okay, fair enough. But Chicago is such an awesomely dynamic spot. You'd want to be somewhere in there. So I'd be interested to see what that place is like. Yeah, uh, all the stores are stocked full of Dinesia and AJV experts who will help get you fit and fitted with all of their latest gear, including the D air airbag suits. And Quentin, you got recently kitted out in another, all the Dainese stuff. And we're quite happy. I wear it a lot for my track and street needs. It's excellent, excellent stuff. So if you're in the San Francisco, Orange County, Chicago, and now Orlando areas, you should stop by and check out their wares and they support the podcast, which in my book, Makes some aces. Aces. Which is right next door. Right. With the coffee. Yeah. Quinn, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you about some racing. Racing. I got I got a couple things about racing I want to talk to you about. Okay. Uh, in the spirit of Nikki Bobby, I just want to go fast. I just want to talk about racing. Yep. Oh, we had the uh so there was the Donington Park round for World Superbike, which was right after Nikki's passing. I think great World Superbike racing, great tribute from the paddock uh, for him. I think it would have done him proud. If you haven't seen those races, you should go see them. We just had the Italian Grand Prix this past weekend as of today's recording, which was a fantastic race, in my opinion. Amazing. Um, good to see the MotoGP paddock honoring Nikki with 69 seconds of silence, which I thought was fantastic. And then the on-track um stuff and i should say right now if you haven't seen the races turn off your radio because we're gonna do some spoiler action but uh and, and turn off your radio and just go watch it like immediately yeah yeah i don't like, know what what are you doing yeah, if you're like your life sure. priorities are upside down yeah right we this is my mom's third favorite podcast <laughs> why are you watching this before motor gp <laughs> like even my own mother i'm her only child <laughs> um she says a lot about me probably I'm a failure as a child. <laughs> I'm I'm not saying anything over here. <laughs> it's my show, Quentin. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> All uh, right. So the GP was set up. GP. The setup was interesting because yeah. you had Rossi get hurt, and after the whole weekend, I'm my head's like, was that some sort of Machiavellian scheme right? to make it seem like he really was? Like hurt, but he wasn't like, I don't think he was. That's, I know that sounds crazy. I, I had the same, I had the same <laughs> thought. So Rossi got hurt motocross training. He got hurt on his motocross bike and it sounded like he got pretty banged up. Um, they but were saying, banged up with plausibly deniable. I don't know, not plausibly, but like things that, oh, well, well it is really horrible. Well, but you know what? So, all of a sudden, so let's, you can ride. Let's just throw all the all the fire, all the gas on the fire. Oh, that was just a little dyslexic moment. I caught myself in fire on the gas. All the man. fire on the gas, and look at like like just that situation where like he gets in this motocross accident, and like you know we don't 
really know what he hurt, to be honest, because there was really kind of like nebulous the information. Thoracic area. It was in the it was in the body area. <laughs> it was it was like on his body, on his person. Yeah. Um. It sounded like his emotions were fine. His psychological state was fine. It was like a physical type of injury. <laughs> but like, so there's a lot of talk of like he injured his um his kidneys and his liver, which. You know, unless you're um, you have signs of internal bleeding, I don't really know how you measure. I'm not a doctor, even though I went to school for a really long time. Um, Any Holiday Inn experience recently? <laughs> good with my hands. <laughs> Got tiny little fingers to get in little crevices, just like miners. No, no, no. You're thinking of miners. miners. I'm talking about miners. Yes. <laughs> just aside, I was in a bar the other day and they had like a big no minor sign. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like I, every time, <laughs> every time I see it, I just saw one the other day myself and I'm thinking, I'm just thinking of spelunking or, or the, like, what is that thing? The, uh, the pick. I'm just thinking of pick. Every time I see it, pickaxe. I think of somebody just pickaxing, right? Dink, dink, Uh, we are, we have to get out more often. We have a minor we have problem. Do. We have a, no, not a minor problem, a minor problem. <laughs> Uh, okay all right sorry but yeah like and it was really interesting like the press release and the information being communicated from yamaha was really really vague and my colleague david emmett wrote a really interesting story about you know how how serious are these injuries and there's a lot of conjecture in italy and just the motor gp press in general like how hurt is he? he stayed the night but then you post like this like photo of him like smiling with like the medical staff and you're just like what's going on here so if you want to build a conspiracy theory, you know, going into the Italian Grand Prix, the Mugello round, his home round, I think you can make a really good argument knowing Easily. Rossi and Easily. He's he is throwing every old man dirty trick in the book into his final seasons. And it would just be par for the course because truthfully, like <laughs> looking at looking at the results and looking at the sessions, it just kind of like you're like you don't strike me as someone that was just in the no, hospital. No, and I know you you and I haven't even talked about this. That's I'm really stoked that you're seeing it the same yeah. way I am because that means that there's that just feel well, I feel more legitimized. Cuz it's something I would do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm like you're a crafty son of a bitch. Well, I'm thinking back to that time 2 years ago when he was um doing all of his weird Machiavellian things with with um with Mark Marquez. And that didn't go very well. He was bad at it. It was horrible, right? So because that didn't work out, I still have it in my head that, you know, and I'm a fan. I love this. Oh, you're I not. You're a fan. You're a fan boy. Like I'm, you're a fanatic. I'm a fan boy. Whatever it is, put put the boy pants you're the on most me. I'm like a minor Rossi fan. I'm out. a minor. Well, you're not the worst. You're not the worst. Which is scary. Like the fact <laughs> that you're not the worst just means there's others out there. For sure. And we know this, and it's it is scary. But anyway, with that <laughs> Mountain Dew, oh, so good. Yeah, right. Um, we should get them as a sponsor. You should figure that out. You know, I don't, but I don't know if they they'd pay- be like they'd listen to a couple of shows and be like, "Why would we sponsor? Why? why? You? I don't know why Dionysia is doing it. Why would we do it? <laughs> His mother has two other podcasts that she enjoys more. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is they would be like, "You already talk about yeah, us. They're getting it free, right? So why would we do that?" Then all of a sudden, boy, great, I'm feeling the jolt. Great marketing opportunity for, I don't know, Red Bull. <laughs> I totally know some Red Bull people listen to this show. That's a good idea. You can either send me some product <laughs> or just pick up some advertising dollars. Either way, I win. Except for when you get kidney stones. Oh, yeah, you do get the kidney stones. 
Okay. Mountain Dew has the citric acid, so you don't get the kidney stones. FYI. <laughs> it's also not as bad for your teeth because it's not, no phosphoric acid. Done my homework. Yep. And I will, I have to say, the one you're drinking right now was purchased by ah, me because you're a good man. I, I like them too, right? It almost makes up for the day in, day out punology I have to deal with. <laughs> the punishment. So, um, Rossi for sure. Oh man! And then, but I've, so so I was getting the deal when you were talking about it. The Marquez thing I feel is like the thing that proves the point. Whereas like that's the only time it's ever backfired on him. Yeah. All the other times he's gotten away with it. Set it driven out. Where is he? Max Biaggi. Where is he? Danny Pedrosa. Where is he? Oh boy, where is he in the gravel trap again? Oh. <laughs> this is this adds to the whole. Oh, well, we got to get back Danny. to that. Let's get, continue on Rossi. So Rossi, the the setup to the, the the race is that he was sick, but then gets there and is hauling ass. Qualified pretty well. Second, second, like so, like and and just a breath behind. Yeah, so almost on pole. Super fast, and of course this is Mugello. But you say that, but you know what? He hasn't really set the world on fire. He hasn't set Mugello on fire for a long time. Uh, Lorenzo's been fucking throwing him a caning uh, for many years now, right? So uh, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that he would be fast there, but he was fast. Um, he had a rad-looking helmet, and he uh, did a little salute to Nikki. Really interesting that the 46 and the 69 was so similar in font. I mean, I'm sure they had to tweak it a little bit. But when you think about it, if you put them next to each other, I don't know if if Drudy made the made the 69 font. But I'm trying to think who's no Nikki was Starlight. Starlight was it? or I'm, Air I'm Tricks? Getting, I'm getting, no, it's not Air Tricks. Well, I mean, he was I, Air Tricks back. I, in I don't know, but the day I know it's I'm screwing up the name. I don't think it's called Starlight, but it's Star something. Starline, something like that. Yeah, but whatever. So the fact that the that the lettering was canted at the right angle for Rossi to it said four six and then the the six transferred into a, a sixty nine of of yeah Starline Starline and that's a really cool uh, it was really cool really well done and then he had his his soccer dude on on the helmet as well which is really cool anyway so he goes in hauls ass and in the race um, fucking let it for a little while was showing a lot of speed and but just didn't quite have it to battle with uh, Dovey. Well, Dovey, and then uh, eventually uh, Vinales. Vinales, yeah. But then, holy shit. Um, uh, I'm forgetting his name. That's so sad. Batista? No. The person who came in third. Oh. Um, My brain. Petrucci. Yeah. And Danilo. Danilo. So, Love Danilo. And, yeah, right. Everybody loves Danilo. <clears throat> And the fact that this was his, it was dry, it was Mugello, and he and he got on the podium on a Ducati. I mean, like as he said, I would have sold my house for this, and he didn't have to. It was awesome. So Rossi, hopefully, hopefully getting a, a podium bonus. That's about the yeah, worth of his house, big time, right? And what team is that he's on? Is it not? Primac? That's the Octo Primac Racing. It's Primac? Okay. Yeah. So that was amazing. So Dovi and early in the race had this gnarly freaking oh, yeah. it wasn't a tank slapper it was a full on motorcycle out of control flop 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 almost crash style deal right uh, going down the front straight at 230 miles an hour yeah something like that right 
unreal really cool very interesting to see because when i saw that i'm like ooh, ooh, you know i, I remember seeing it the a little bit of it i'm like oh that's always oh, legit that's and, and it wasn't like ugly. it was just a one-time thing you watched that they were all that little on eggshells everyone every time there was a great slow-mo of danilo and you see him come over the crest and just as he does he rolls off the throttle yeah. and then gets back on it just to kind of get that nose Those back down and to so fast so and that's fast. kind of the difference of like where the winglets were making yeah, a sure. lot of advantages. But, but finally, Ducati came good. So whatever combination of tire and chassis, uh, and, and maybe and carbon track. fiber fork tubes. Yeah, maybe because they were using at least Dovies from the the one shot that I saw them. I was like, oh, those are the carbon fork tubes, right? Because it was like clear. Um, so that one. Well, not clear. They're black, but yeah. Well, you know, but that would be neat to have clear, like plexi, maybe. So the um. Uh, what is it? Translucent aluminum. Translucent transluminum. This is a Star Trek thing. No, really. Yeah. Oh yeah. The one where they go back in time and they get the humpback whale and they bring it to the future yep. to talk to the alien. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Spoiler good. alert. We're gonna have to watch that one. That's a good one. That is a good one. I like that. They're in San Francisco. The vessels, right? The vessels, the nuclear. I would the like to see vessels. a nuclear vessels. Yeah, that's a good one. That's our really good Russian accent, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it is really good. From the Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> I like the me crane. So the um the 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 bikes were working well. Mugello's fast and flowing, so it didn't suit the Hondas apparently because the Hondas are all about Honda the where <laughs> point point and shoot, and this place is not point and shoot. It's corner speed. It's a it's that's why it's such a Lorenzo track because it was like massive corner speed helps and that's where the Ducati has been lacking and and whatever combination of tires I can't remember who was on what but Dovi was a straight up a fucking animal he was an animal it was impressive to watch one of my favorite riders I was so stoked for him um controlled animal like like it'd be like a lion in a cage that you could you would just have grab a gazelle on on command yeah. but that's it just get that one gazelle, bring it back, and that's it. That's what he was doing. He's so metered and controlled, and and sick on his own right, apparently, because he was. Oh yeah, he, he get a little stomach. Yeah, a stomach yeah. A bug, and that that's not good. And so that and that might have been a little of the the Italian. Thing. doesn't really. I don't think he really does that. I don't think so either. And when you see his interview afterwards, he's a little gaunt. Well, you look at it. You look in his eyes. They're like he has almost like black eyes. Yeah, he was. Know. He was not doing too well. But he was doing real well because the adrenaline from just winning a MotoGP, an Italian, on an Italian bike, winning the Italian GP for the first time since like the early 70s or something like that. Yeah. And I think I think the last time that someone had won the Italian Grand Prix wasn't even at Mugello. So this is such an unprecedented kind of thing. Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, I think it was at Imola. Um, and Davi's such a good guy. Like we we're talking about Nicky and what a great dude he is. You know, Davi's one of those guys too that's just a really good person, really intelligent, really good interviews really insightful comments i was super stoked for him um did the sound i mean first off during the race in the very beginning stages when rossi was leading when you can hear the crowd through the through the live feed like yeah. when they're showing the racing at, and they're not in oh my god the sound was like what you thought watching watching um uh, the the Roman Colosseum, like, yeah. that's what the it sound. That, well, this is this is the modern day version of a Roman Colosseum. This is, is literally what it is. You were talking about gladiatorial men risking their lives for your entertainment. Yeah, and that's what it sounded like. And then when he raised the the uh, trophy, same thing, chills, right? Because 
there were so many people, so many people that stormed the track and like they all get out in the track and they all watch the podium ceremony. And this time, and I correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't gotten a chance to see Moto3 and Moto2 yet, which I know are both pretty epic. But from what I understand, all three races were won by an Italian. Is that true? No clue. I had I had family stuff this weekend, so I didn't really. Get I know, a and that's to the thing was like it. so much was going on that I had to watch this. I saw one post in social media from somebody that it was like of note that I was like that was a good race. Holy shit! And as soon as I saw that, I had to you know get to it. But then I I didn't have time to watch the other stuff. So if that's the case, uh, are, are, the the Google's says that is the case. That Mattia Passini won the Moto Two race. And uh, Andrea Mingno from Mingno. Uh, from Rossi's uh, Moto3 team. Is he? So that's a big deal as well. Can you imagine? So by the time MotoGP had um, gone on, the whole state. They, they had a good time. Everybody Italy there. had a good day. Italy was stoked, right? And there was almost a record crowd. There was almost 100,000 people there day of, which is pretty. Pretty good. Or it was a day of for the weekend, but it was almost, it was record crowds. Not too shabby at all. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's that's part of the reason for Rossi's Machiavellian fake uh, soft tissue injuries. <laughs> I mean, like, or, you know, or real ones. Or real ones. Whatever. <laughs> you be the judge. Sure. Uh, Quentin, I want to I wanna get through it real quickly, but we're, we're in the middle of the Isle of Man TT as well. Yep. Which is an amazing, amazing thing. I want to, I don't want to start too far without first. Um, acknowledging that the, I mean, by the time this, this podcast get out, gets out, uh, the TT will probably be over. I'm just going to be straight up with it. It's going to take us a couple days to get this done. And we only have a few more days of racing. Um, but I just want to give a quick thought because I literally just wrote this story that about Davey Lambert, um, passed away. Uh, well, he sustained injuries during the Superbike TT. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and then just passed away tonight, um, in, in Liverpool at the hospital in Liverpool. Um, so condolences to condolences family, family, uh, his friends, his, uh, his partner, um, uh, his partner, Tracy, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough one with the TT and I've been to the TT twice and I've been to the Pikes peak and, um, it's really weird for me as a journalist to go, especially to the TT to a race that I know, statistically speaking, I'm going to cover the deaths of multiple people. Uh, it's, it's definitely something that, that threw me for a loop the first time I went and it's kind of something I've carried with me ever since. And now that Pike's peak is kind of getting a little bit more dangerous as well. It's one of those things that's in my head when I go there and it's tough. And, um, I was lucky that a friend of mine sent me a story that I wrote a few years ago about this. And I think, um, I think I was at the Alamo when I wrote it and there was a lot of pushback and there always is pushback and I'm sure there'll be pushback with, um, with Davey. Uh, and, and his, um, you know, situation. Cause there's always this conversation of like, well, why are we still engaging in this, this sport that it has such a high risk? And, and I kind of came to this conclusion of like, well, I have a couple and one it's like, and I think Quentin, you and I talked about this on, on the Nikki show that we didn't publish where it's about putting life into your years, not years into your life. And I'm definitely a firm believer in that. That's why I ride motorcycles. That's why I do what I do. That's why I work for myself. That's why I kind of beat to my own drum because I want to make sure that I'm getting the maximum experience out of the short time that I'm here. I have no illusions that I'm getting out of this, out of this one alive. So let's just live as much as we can. Yeah. Um, but it's also this idea and, and going to the TT, I think, helps uh, frame this 
where it is such a spectacle. It is such a feat to see these racers, these true road racers, going around lapping this 37.73 mile course at a, an average speed of 130 miles an hour plus. 133-ish now is the top mark. Um, this fortnight, it's been a little bit slower because the weather's been been uncooperative. But just this idea, like, for most of these places, they are flat out in sixth gear. And you get to go watch it, literally, Quentin, like, I don't know how many feet are in between you and I right now, maybe 10 feet. So half this distance is how close you get to these bikes, maybe a third of this distance. Man, you can almost touch some of these bikes if you're stupid enough to, as they fly past you. It is an amazing spectacle to go to go witness. And I think everyone, every motorcyclist owes it to themselves to go see the TT at least once and go there with the understanding that you'll probably get hooked and want to keep going back. But it put it, it framed it really well for me because it that spectacle and how great of an event and how iconic this event is and how unique and special this event is is because of the danger is because of the risk and that these racers accept that as a reality and still choose to go race everyone that lines up at glen country road before the start of a race or start of a practice session or a qualifying session knows what the ultimate price is for this for this winning a plastic trophy for winning fleeting seconds of fame and, you know, they're doing it because they're trying to add life to their years, not years to their life. And so it creates this thing of, you know, you know, the reason we we think of these people in such high regards is because of what they're doing is so amazing and spectacular. And it's so amazing and spectacular because of the risk that's involved. So you can't remove, I think, the death from the racing. I think they're part and parcel. And that's part of what makes it um, have such a draw. It's a little morbid. Maybe, but I think when you get past the idea that all of us die at some point in time, it makes it really special. So um, that's kind of the thing for me. I, I, it's almost you're preaching to the choir, man. I've been dealing with this for my whole time as a motorcyclist. I know I didn't have too many people die that I knew in my early days, but I mean, I saw enough shit where I'm like, this is dangerous, but this is why there's such a that's why it's so entertaining. That's why, I mean, with that fear, whatever that dopamine or serotonin or whatever the release is, when you have a death-defying moment and you come across, you come out on the other side of it, or even if you don't and you end up hurt and you're gimping around and or in a wheelchair uh, of recovering or whatever the part is, you but you're alive, that um, feels good. And then you want to get back out on there. You want that serotonin or dopamine or whatever it is released because that's part of the deal. You want all of the things, all your fight or flight re- responses and all the all the synapses firing in a very specific way because I don't think they fire many, for most people in any other way than when they're doing this, right? They, not, not everybody goes and does mountain climbing without ropes or... Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I literally was just reading a story the other the, day the, about, the about free climbing. The kid that did the full yeah. free climb, yeah. yeah. So not everybody gets to... I mean, I've done that. I've, I've not done free climbing, but I've top roped up shit. And when, you're, when I'm looking down and I'm holding onto a rock, and yeah, I'm belayed, but I'm looking down and I'm still scared shitless, but you make it to the top, it's one of the best feelings ever, ever, ever. And then when you have to go back down, it's scary as shit. But then when you get back down to the ground, you're like, Whew, and that's a great feeling. You just don't, there's not too many other things that fill that cup. For me, as a mechanic, 
you know, you know, p- pulling the tire warmers off of a racer's bike as they're about to go out on a bike that I just built gets up there pretty close. Me clicking it in the gear and getting in, in, in a grid, um, there, there's nothing that replicates it. Going to a track day certainly satiates a certain part of it. Riding hard on the off-road certainly satiates part of it. But nothing is the same as gridding up. And I mean, we'll probably talk about this in a bit relative to your own experience. Yeah. But for Isle of Man, that's like next level that I can't even imagine, right? Because you're on these roads on this circuit and it's such a storied thing. It's a hundred years old, older. It's, it's, yeah, uh, and on an island in the in the Irish Sea, is it there? Irish Sea? Really cool, really cool little island, little island. It's Everything its about it is epic. There's nothing that's not epic about it. No, nothing. yeah, yeah. We we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about it. It, it is got to go do it. I I can't explain it to you why in in the short amount of time we have on a podcast, you got to go do it. Uh, the the paddock is unlike anything you've ever experienced. The island and the people are unlike anything you've ever experienced. The racing, oh my god, the racing's unlike anything you've ever experienced. Go do it. Book your book your trip now. If you want to get on the ferry for next year, you got to start booking it now and, and find an accommodation. You got to start booking it now. Um, the big, the big thing this year is Michael Dunlop versus Ian Hutchinson. At the time of this recording, they have one race win apiece. Uh, Michael Dunlop had to retire from the superbike race. Ian Hutchinson had a pretty garbage super sport race, uh, in a couple hours. Why did he have to retire? What was wrong? Uh, I forget what the technical issue was, but there was technical something. Issue. Yeah. On Dunlop, what is he racing? Is it a BMW? No, he's on the Jixer this oh, year. Oh, he's on a Jixer. He's on the GSX R1000R with uh, Bennett Suzuki. Okay. So um, they're about to kick off on the Superstock race in a couple hours here. Oh, uh, yeah. We'll be curious. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, a couple hours. A few hours. There's been a lot of weather on the Isle of Man this year, and that happens sometimes. So who knows if the race will get delayed. Today's racing was was canceled because of, of rain and, and the moisture. Mm-hmm. you're in the middle of the sea man it happens yep but really cool to kind of see it coming together obviously john mcginnis got injured at the uh excuse northwest, me, northwest 200. 200 so he's sitting it out with uh, a litany of of issues and i think i take i take mcpine at his word on this one i don't think he's pulling a rossi <laughs> no right no most definitely he knows he's not um, I think I think we're just all happy he's still here. Uh, uh, Guy Martin and Guy Martin, I think we're all happy he's still here. He had to look like he abandoned ship during the um, the superbike race, and from the footage that we've been seeing. But uh, yeah, it hasn't been a good time out from the Hondas. He it looked like um, Martin hit a false neutral as he was coming in off a, a fast section, and it just for whatever reason, it's a strange thing because when you you think all right, you hit a false neutral. You could still use the, the the brakes. There's still a lot of your your uh, your your stopping force. You're not using the engine braking, uh, but so that would be what I'd want to know. I'd love to be able to talk to guy and be like, "All right, why weren't you like? What would cause you to? I mean, but you know, it's, dude, you got walls everywhere and all kinds of bad shit happening if you crash. So you know, yeah, and like, and how much of that is is him kind of being rusty? And then the other part of it, like you know, you know, Quentin, we kind of take it for granted on the track of like. You know, that racing line, that perfect racing line, like, okay, I hit this apex right right here, yeah, sure. and then I come out here. And like, for these guys, especially a guy Martin's level and above, to be doing the lap times that they're doing, it's the same kind of thing. They hit that exact spot on the road right next to the telephone pole, three inches off the curb to get set up yep. for, you know, you can even see some shots of, of Michael Dunlop using the curbs sure. to straighten out the wheel to help him no, make burnt. the turn. Yep. Sure. Uh, you know, just silly, stupid shit. So I could see part of it being like, you know, he needed that 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 thread the needle moment 
and needed the engine braking or was expecting the engine braking to be there because it's just kind of a split second thing and that gets him off the line and there he goes but it was it seemed really strange to me you know i think you're right where it's like how much how much are you really relying on the engine braking to set you up but maybe at that level that's dude and it's a split second timing i think about if i've had to do a false neutral and it's happened a couple times mostly on the street but you just gather it up and i don't i i can't i don't think I'm certainly not going to bench race on that one. No, I no, no, can't fathom what he had to go through. He, he's done far more on a motorcycle than I ever have. So who and am I to question for me? Yeah. Right. And on a bicycle and on a steam train. Yeah. Right. And on a silly car and a, and a lorry. Probably not. Is a that lift, her name? <laughs> so yeah. Interesting to watch the TT. Always, always love to, to, to see the racing ITV four North, North one does great um, broadcasting. We're getting it out here on the Velocity Channel. It's fantastic to see that coverage. I I really want them to eventually start like a live stream and 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 kind of, you know, we we're making the joke about Harley Davidson earlier about you know getting him into the 21st century once we drag him through the 20th century. The TT kind of needs that too, and they're they're coming around to it. Yeah, with but the, from with like the tec- monster money. Yeah, from a technical point of view, there's no reason they can't they can't do a live a live. Coverage. We should be doing a live podcast from there next year. Let's make that a goal. Yeah. I think we could put that together. Nice. We go see Tony, Tony Goldsmith, a MotoGP photographer, road racing photographer, great guy. Steve English might be there. He's an okay guy. We, we, he's, you he's know, all right. Yeah. He's all right. I wouldn't like. Are, are you sure he has to be there? Yeah. I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll see if he can stay somewhere else. <laughs> no, I'd be down for whatever. I'd, I have enough friends that go there or that have gone there. There's all the connections with people. I'd love to be able to check it out. Super cool. Sure. And super cool to go see um, to see the electric race, and and I, I like seeing the fact that Michael Sizz's logo is on a few of the bikes this year. They're definitely remembering him and, and the contributions he's made. So I hope everyone has a good continue uh, good rest of the TT Fortnite. Hopefully, there's no more incidents like we had today, um, and and everyone stays safe and it's good clean racing. And with that, Quentin, I want to talk to you about some racing of my own. Mm-hmm. Your first racing. My first racing. Jensen's first racing. Talk about. On motorcycles. On motorcycles. Did a little racing. Decent racing on the sailboats, but not so much on the motorcycles. Yeah. So Can, I went out and raced with Cascadia Supermoto this past weekend. We had a uh, event at the Mack Track, which is our little go-kart track here in McMinnville. Um, about an hour southwest of, yeah. of Portland. Uh, it's actually a town my my father grew up in, for for a little bit of trivia. Really? Yeah, McMinnville. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. This is where I don't know if you remember the the podcast where I talked about endurance racing as yes, uh, yes. a Honda nineteen seventy nine Honda CRT fifty R, and I did a six hour I think it was endurance, and broke the exhaust and had to repair it with a vitamin water or something like that. I remember. You know, no, that yeah. was the. It was a coconut water can because it was heavy gauge steel. Anyway, that same track. So I've I have a lot of experience with that track. Backwards, both clockwise and counterclockwise. Um, which way were you guys going? We were going clockwise. Okay. So uh, so that front straight ends in kind of a hairpin yep. turn, and rather than the sweeping side, and then um, the the fairground folks were nice enough to come out with a little bobcat and make us a, a dirt course. Wow. So did you do the dirt course? Oh, we did. We got dirty. Got did dirty you send with it. it. I fucking sent it. I came back. So I'll just I'll we'll cut to the chase. Came back with two third place medals, Quentin. 
BMOC right here. <laughs> I got the plastic to prove I've it. I've got to figure out what BMOC means. <laughs> Big man on campus. No, I know. i got to figure out what it really means. <laughs> what it really means. Um, <laughs> it was cool. It was cool. Met some really cool people. They're doing a really good job. Uh, Cascadia Supermoto. Um, I think Case Isaac is in charge of it. Case? Case. Doing a, doing a really good job of, of just bringing Supermoto up to the Pacific Northwest. They go to a couple tracks in Washington. It's boiling, man. I'm seeing people posting up racing stuff from all over the states now. People that I was like, you like Supermoto? You race Supermoto? Things are happening. And it's really yeah. good to hear because I think right now it's starting to boil to where people you know, are going to start doing it more. And, and I've, been doing, I've been going to the go-kart track and just doing kind of track days for ever since I moved up here, really. And even that, I've seen to seen it grow more and more. Like I would go out on some days, and it was like me and like two other dudes. And the last few times I've gone out, like twenty people each. Well, one of the days we went out it was actually a practice day for Cascadia. We had to we had to run actual groups. We had to have a fast and a slow group because there was just too many damn people on the track. That's there's awesome. probably, there's probably fifty people there. So for this round, we had about thirty racers in total, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. I didn't really take a head count. Um, we had to split the asphalt only race in half and do like a an A main and a B main. Uh, I was just stoked to qualify for for the A main. Um, didn't do too well in it because I was gridded last and uh, got kind of caught up in that first hairpin turn. You know, there was all about five or six of us fighting for the same uh, place of asphalt, <laughs> and it's like. That track is so thin. I'm trying to think of how that would be if you were gridded back. No. And if you're not, if if you weren't able to, well, this is how you learn racecraft is starts are critical. Well, that's so Especially things, when you're in the back. Yeah. And I happen to be really freaking good at starts. So I've always been able to like manage to get, and you kind of have to know track position and you have to decide as when you're in the back, where do I really want to be? Do I want to be on the racing line when I get into that turn? And most of the time you don't. You want to be as far away from that where everybody's all fucked up going towards the racing line. You want to be on the round, on the outside of them, right? But it depends on the track. It depends on the corner. It depends on the thing. And it depends on whether you can get a good start. And it sounded like you weren't able to do that. No, I had, I had, I'm not one, me personally, not good at starts. Not something that's in my wheelhouse. Never really had to have a need for it. I don't do drag racing. Yeah, we should we should do so we a, need to, a, a little bit of a course because it's a yeah. it's a skill. It's I, it's it's a subtle thing, man. I got a little bit of the theory, but I don't have any of the of the practice. You have to um, be able to uh, let go of any mechanical sympathy. That's one time where you cannot have mechanical sympathy, right? And you know, I'm yeah. I'm a preacher for that. I don't. I don't think you should beat up equipment, but when you're starting, it's time to, that clutch is there for a reason. You got to look at it as a consumable. You got to fucking use it. Right. And that's the thing. It's an interesting deal. We should go drag race. Yeah. Well, that was the other part was I was definitely having some issues with the bike holding, um, or coming off an idle. It kept stalling. So in my heat races, every single heat race, the bike stalled on me before I could even crack the throttle. And that's something that's been endemic to that bike for a long time. And I kind of fixed it and then had to take the bike into the shop for a bunch of reasons. And when I got it back, it started doing it again. So I'm, I spent basically half my day trying to fix that, which was a bummer. So I didn't get great heat race heat races, which means I didn't get great qualifying positions, which meant I wouldn't get great grade, uh, grid positions. But it was a whole thing. But definitely for, for the main events, I mean, I can only blame myself and not knowing how to how to do good launches. Um, and just got swallowed up and then had to fight my way back up. But it was, it was a lot of fun to, to do that. It was, um, I find it be like a video game when I end up, and this is the way I've ended up racing most of my races. 
because I don't plan very well, and I usually end up showing up and being like, "All right, I'm I'm racing. What what, what class what, can what, I race what's in?" Up? <laughs> right, and then they're like, "Okay, you can race this class. Where am I gridded? At the very back. Okay, whatever." Because I'm not there most of the time to go win. I'm there because it's an experience. It's hard to explain this see, to people. See, that's where that's where you and I are different. I know, and you've talked about this. Like you have this eye of the tiger thing, and I, yeah, I want to beat everybody out there for sure. I'm not saying that I'm not competitive. But if I'm starting in 25th position and I know that I'm not going to work my way up much past fifth, I'm okay with that. I'm not like, oh, I'm not even going to start. I want to get in there and try no, and go. That's fair. No, I'm there. I, I always, I'm very goal oriented. My goal, I always want to win. I'm very, very competitive. Um, I don't think a lot of people who know me understand this until you start seeing me like do competitive sports. But like for me, um, to, to just kind of Tarantino this a little bit, going through the practice sessions. So I used to race sailboats. I was probably. I, I did. I did very well at sailboat. So I was one of the top twenty under twenty in the United States. Um, so the racing side of me is there. So all the practice, I'm going around rider to rider and spend a couple of laps. All right, let's see how fast you go. Where do you where are you fast through here? Where are you fast through there? You know who who are my people that I have to look out for because I'm trying to pick out who are my guys that I got to find to 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 stop. You know, either trading to learn with. to learn something from or to know what right. they're gonna, what they got. Yep. Right, right, right. Especially since I was racing in the novice class, so it's a little bit easier. We only had about I think twelve or thirteen people in our class, um, so it's a little bit easier to get through that because some of them are like, okay, you're you're way way slower than me. I don't have to worry about you. And there's a yeah, couple sure. guys that were like, all right, you're my speed. I got to figure out where you're fast and where you're slow, and where I'm going to make my time. And then with the course having the dirt section, I had to figure out, okay. Um, especially for the latter parts of that course, I'm like, I know I'm very quick through, through those final turns, but the dirt section changes that. So it's like, okay, well, so I had to go through a couple of them like, all right, if I'm not, whoever's leading at the end of the dirt section is going to be leading to the finish line and understand that, you know, if I'm in second place right behind the guy, you know, who's in first place going through the dirt section, I need to get him in the dirt. Otherwise it's over. And understanding that on the race course was, was important for me. Um, but yeah, I had a lot of it was an interesting it was an interesting experience to apply some of the 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 racing tactics that I would have coming from sailing because that's what we do in sailing. Um, the type of boats I would race were racing lasers, tactics, right? Tactics, yeah. <laughs> that's good. Got to have racecraft on a watercraft. That's that's <laughs> important. But that's one of the things you do is you run you run the start finish line to see what is the favored point of sail, what is the favored side of the course. And then, you know, that plays a lot into your strategy of like, do I want to start at the pin end or the boat end in terms of where the crowd is and where the positioning is and who are my fast guys, who are going to be the guys that, that are going to, at the last second going to dart in and try to get the perfect position. And those are the guys you really have to watch out for, if that, especially if that's something you're trying to do as well. So there's a lot of like little little weird strategies that, that kind of carried over. But in terms of like going from a track, being a track day rider versus like a, a racing rider, I actually found it very liberating because the the dirty passes that I won't yeah. do on a track it's, day. It's bitching, isn't it? For was, sure. You know, where like you kind of care because like truthfully at the end of it, and, and I will be honest, in the novice race, I got in a little little bit of a crash route, probably my fault, but purely because it's just like, I'm going to make this pass. I would not make this pass on a track day, not in a million years. Yeah. But I'm right here. I'm trying to fight for the win. You're in my way. You opened yeah. up a gap. I'm going for it. Sure. And it didn't work out, <laughs> but you know. That's racing. You're just like a big Pedrosa. You're a double sized Pedrosa. You know what the best part is? And I feel bad. I, and I forget the gentleman who, who we, we, we were, we came together right at the start of the dirt section. And he went wide and I took him on the inside. And then he came in and kind of closed the door and we came together. And I, I grabbed a bunch of front brake. That was the, my fault. 
Um, so obviously lost the front end and then we went down yeah. together. I got back up and was able to catch the three or four people that passed us during that time and ended up finishing third. And he ended up um, not making up as many places. So I kind of feel bad for that. But then yeah, go dude, like, that's racing. That's Sorry. racing. You yeah, got to pick the bike up, pick yeah. up the bike up and go. Um, but how a lot of fun we, you know, we, we, you have a starter motor on your bike, right? Yeah. That's a huge deal. Like right. a lot of people are like, Oh, laugh, laugh, laugh. But mm, no, that would be bitching. Cause the, the, you put a bike on the ground and uh, some of your competitors are probably on carbureted bikes. It's hot. Bad things happen. It's tough. Whereas I don't if think you, anyone was on carbureted bikes. Well, I mean, there were some DRZs out there, but they you weren't. You know, in our I'm class. sure there's something out, but I'm just saying that's one of the things that if you had to kickstart, it's a, it's not fun. And it would be fun. It would be good. It would have been a whole thing. You're making me wonder how hard it would be. I mean, I do have another wheel. Um, I do have another to- uh, Christini wheel for my 250. I should just do sportsman class. And there's a 250 class. Sure, but I'd have and to there's do, a sportsman class. I'd have to do sportsman because I'm not going to put supermoto shit on that bike, but. Um, I would put um, a sportsman class, which is 21 inch front. What tire? You put the Avon on the front and then a, then a flat track on the rear and you go have fun. And I've done that on a 450 10 years ago. At, uh, that was the only time I raced supermoto was at uh, Cal Speedway during an AMA race. I was There was a, a, a thing in the parking lot at Fontucky. And I had a lot of fun, I, I would, but I sucked on the dirt. Like I was like rolling every hill and that sucked. Sorry, every hill, every jump, and that—that that was where I would get. But I was hauling ass on the street on those awful tires, which you'd think wouldn't be that good, but you don't need that much grip. And on a 250, my little 250 would be okay. Plus, I have that sweet two-wheel drive action two-wheel going. Drive on, the right? dirt. <laughs> yeah, you would have. Uh, it would have been interesting to see what that would have done for the dirt section. So I might have to get into that. I'll figure that out. I think I'm going to do one more round later this year. I'll probably drag you with me. We'll see if I can either that or just get on one of the Altas. If I could figure out a way to do the Alta, um, shoot even that as a um, as a uh, sportsman bike would be interesting. If you're out there with not having to modify the crap out of, not having to worry about getting the wheels. Say if if uh, our good buddy Christian's out and about with the supermoto, showing it off to people, and I could just use one of the other ones, I'd do it for sure. I'd give that a try. Yeah, I should try and figure out a way to do it. Yeah, it'd be good. It'd be good. It was. Um yeah, it was frustrating. It was frustrating because I thought I could, I thought I could, I had the pace to win in my mind. Yeah. Well, the, but that gives you the impetus to do it again yeah. and go back and have, have a goal and right. It keeps you humble. If you go out and you win, I remember this happened to me on mini bikes. I think I won or got was like in the top three in my first race. And that kind of you know, gets you like, oh, wow. I, and I, I'm a competitive person. So when that happened to me, it was very weird and I didn't really understand how to, how to deal with that. And that wasn't a, that wasn't necessarily a good thing. Cause then you, you don't learn all the things that you need to learn having to come up through the ranks. You yeah, know what I mean? No, no, for sure. And I was glad that there was a couple of guys that had similar pace with me. Um, and, and that there was that, that competitive nature, uh, in that class. Cause it, it, uh, truthfully, when I, when you and I had this conversation, I felt kind of bad entering as a novice, even though I'm a true, motorcycle racing novice but obviously it's been yeah, a lot of and time i was on like bikes. fuck that you are a novice you haven't raced go in the novice class that's the way it should be done yeah. for sure uh and it did feel i mean i was definitely faster than than the bulk of the class but it was good to see that there was a couple other guys that were as fast if not faster certainly on faster bikes um if you'd have won it's straight up okay you're cherry picking time to go move up just oh for just sure for your own but the fact that you you weren't able to right away but if you win the next time then you just kick yourself right back up and then have to do the thing right and there's some fast dudes and that's what i like seeing too like you know we probably should preface this earlier 
there are some fast guys in, in the the 450 open class. Oh, I bet. Um, I out there with some serious with machinery. Like it's not like you know, moto. Uh, it's one of those things where like supermoto is kind of in a fledgling state in a way in the U.S. And it would be easy to see like, oh, how competitive is this class really? And you, you know, Quentin and I, you and I were talking at dinner about you know certain racing series. You you line up the grid in AF AFM, and man, you are dealing with some of the fastest people in the United States right now. Yeah, for sure. And it's and it's legit. And there's certain club races you could line up and 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 be a god right off the bat because yeah. the the it's just not as competitive. But you line up an AFM, you're probably just as but you might as well be running up in an AMA race or a yeah. Moto America race. And so that was the thing that really struck me, especially on the asphalt race. Um, you know, I'm a pretty quick guy on the asphalt for sure, and I'm at a track that I'm fairly comfortable with. And I was like, there are dudes that are smoking me. This is a very competitive field. Um, so it was good to see that. It was good to see that the competition is strong. It is good to see that the organization is strong. It's good to see that the racing series is growing. The awareness is growing. Uh, it bodes well for, for the Pacific Northwest supermoto scene. So big, big ups to Cascadia for, for doing that. And, you know, big thanks for having, for letting them, for them letting me come race with them. Um, seemed like a good group of people, uh, just hanging out and talking in the paddock. Everyone seemed pretty, pretty chill, pretty awesome. All about the racing, all about camaraderie. And then once we got on the track, you know, you know, banging elbows, which I like too. And with a bike that had lights on it. Well, that was the thing. Like, you know, we were actually joking. I was talking, joking to one of the guys, actually the guy I, I crashed into. And he's like, yeah, I got 58 horsepower at the rear wheel. And I'm like, cool. I have 45. Maybe because my power commander blew Maybe. up. And, yeah. you know, who knows what I'm really making now. Yeah. Um, with a street bike. It was a street um, bike and it's a little heavy. I mean, like, you can make all these excuses. Heavy, dude, you took your kickstand off. I took the kickstand you, off. You you put the kickstand on the shelf. You know, I had to take it off because I was going to go send it. <laughs> um, yeah, so I had a good time. I, I definitely I, I definitely see the allure of, of what you talk about, you know, in previous podcasts about, about racing and getting out there. There was a good uh, mini bike. Uh, field i think yeah. they had about five or six Which guys really good to hear super fast uh young kid out there too so good to see we have uh, another generation of racers coming through was and hannah out there no hannah was doing some family thing she had some good excuse because i thought i saw a picture of her she with... was at the track the next day oh there was a track day afterwards okay it wasn't a race though All no right. no no, no. Because I can imagine her being competitive or getting out in their class, and it would be cool. Yeah, to she's see another her one going. we got to drag out. There's a few. There's a few little supermoto people in Portland that we need to to drag out of her because it's mostly a uh, Washington contingency. Is it really? And if there's one thing I know about Washington, it's that they, they can't drive for shit. So how no, are they winning races? No, they suck. So we got to be able to beat them for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, good interstate rivalry. <laughs> um, and I'll be there with my California plates because that's yes. how I roll. Because <laughs> it makes everybody angry, and that's really good. You'll psych them out with the California plates. Yeah, I need to get. I have some. I just found some Texas plates in my garage. I'm gonna put them on when we go out there and just be like, "Yeah, worst case scenario, guys. California, Texas. Fuck all you fingers in the air." All right. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to my sponsors, Ace Moto Toe Racing. <laughs> uh, provided provided me with excellent service uh, for for my racing needs. And uh, to our good friends at Pirelli and CT Racing for getting me a tire when I absolutely wasted waited until the last minute to to get that done. So thanks right to on. them. All right, and thanks to uh, Dan Easy for the uh, involvement with the podcast. Where can we find their stores, Quentin? Oh man, <laughs> yeah, you're, I, you're, I usually do the heavy lifting. You're you the one fucking that fucking earn your keep around here. Yeah, but I can't remember all those all those towns, all those cities. 
Let me see. It's Orange County, San Francisco, not New York yet, Orlando, Chicago. See, this is proof that marketing works. Yes, there it is. Sign up for our podcast. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Kickstands up. Good talk. See you out there, Quentin. I went to the Ace uh, Cafe in London. Yeah. Horrible food. Uh, Horrible food. It, it, where did you say it is? It's in London. Uh-huh. Yeah. In England, right? In England. Yeah. Yeah. So horrible so food. Horrible food.